0: Morning. Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, if you would. Uh, in the daily Bible reading on Sunday mornings, we try to keep up uh, as, a, as we're all hopefully reading through the, the Bible together. And this morning, I believe, uh, or today, would be Hebrews chapter 9. And I going to focus on one chapter of Hebrews. And then I thought maybe we should look at Hebrews. 1 through 10, which you would have almost read so far. Um, We should look at those together. And I am excited about the book of Hebrews because it's one of my favorite books for the simple fact that it is dedicated to making sure we know that Jesus is greater or Jesus is better. And uh, as I was doing some study, I, I was listening to a pastor and, and he said, wouldn't it have just been easier to say Jesus is best? There's 13 chapters in the book of Hebrews and each chapter keeps talking about, it kind of builds on each other, how Jesus is better. And, and he said, wouldn't it have been better just to say Jesus is best? And that covers it all. And then he said, how much more powerful is it when you examine everything going on in your life, examine what you think, Examine what you believe in and what you put your hope and trust in. And isn't it more powerful to see how Jesus is better than those things? How Jesus is greater than those things? What we're going to do to uh, look at these chapters is we're going to try to get out of our 21st century American mindset and, and go back and try and experience this from what the original readers would have been seeing and, and try to get at what the original author was intending and in doing that i think you'll be able to easily make the connection that no matter when you read this book if you're an if you are an old testament practicing jew or if you're a 21st century american christian no matter when you read this book it's going to be clear and very foundational and paramount that we always remember that jesus is greater So that whatever you're facing in your life, whatever ideas are coming your way, whatever people are trying to tell you, whatever the world is trying to tell you, the test, the standard has to be Jesus. Because he's better than what anything else will tell you. And Jesus himself and God went to great lengths to prove that to us. So, all that to say... Hebrews chapters 1 through 10, we're going to divide it up into four different sections. We're going to look at chapters 1 and 2. We're going to look at chapters 3 and 4. We're going to look at chapters 5 through 7. And we're going to look at chapters 8 through 10, all as four sections. And to understand what is going on, we, we don't know who the author is, and we're not exactly sure who the audience was. It's neither are specified, but it's pretty clear that the author is writing to um, Jewish A Jewish community that is probably either just become Christian or has been Christian and needs to remember that following Jesus, despite the persecution they face, despite the culture they live in, is the most important thing they can do. And never giving up who Christ really was is what's going to sustain their faith and give them the confidence to continue to bring the gospel to their world. So, uh, these four sections, um, the author takes four things from Old Testament Jewish religion, the Old Testament Jewish religion, and he shows and compares and contrasts how Jesus is greater than the religious system that many of these people would have grown up in and would have thought was the way to God. And he wants to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, and he is the better version of all these things. And Jesus is what God had always intended to send to save sinners. So it says this in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the worlds. Right off the bat, he's letting you know, he's reminding the readers, he's letting us know that God has spoken to people throughout history. And if you are uh, an Old Testament practicing Jew, you are well aware that God has oftentimes come and spoken a word to his people. And the thesis here the uh, the the main point here is that the son of god jesus the man who walked for 33 years the man from nazareth the man who had this big following the man who did all these miracles the man who was crucified by the romans and the man who is claimed to have been resurrected this man is the fulfillment of all of the things god has said before and he is the last and final best word that God has spoken to his people and to this earth. And if you look at verse 3, you get an idea of exactly what the author wants his readers to walk away with. And so I hope you will walk away this morning uh, understanding this, uh, thinking about this, um, worshiping in this, and and wrestling with this idea. But in chap- uh, verse 3 it says this of chapter 1, Jesus being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. So his whole argument going to hinge on this fact that Jesus, and he's going to go into detail, but Jesus is greater, Jesus is better because he is the brightness of God's glory. So if you could look at the sun, think of the rays of the sun that radiate out. And if you were to look at that, it would blind you, Right? Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. And and as I was studying, I heard someone say, think of it like a signet ring. So when God is writing his letter and he seals it with wax and he puts his seal down, the seal that you know that is from the king or, or from God, it would be Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you know you're following God. You know you're hearing the word of God. And so that's what he wants his readers, and that's what I hope you will take away this morning, is that Jesus is the brightness of the glory of God and the express image of God, and so Jesus is better than any other philosophy out there, any other way of thinking out there, any other hope you could put your faith in. Jesus is better. And so what the author does in uh, chapters 1 through 10 in these four sections is he takes four aspects of Old Testament Jewish religion, and he wants to go through and show step by step how Jesus is better than what these people had previously thought was important to God. And, And not that it wasn't important, and not that it still isn't important, but Jesus is greater than these things. And so what Jesus says is what we need to be sure we know. And so, in verse four, he starts out the first uh, aspect of o- of the Old Testament that Jesus is better than are the angels. In verse four, he says, "Having become, this is Jesus, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." And you'll notice in verse in chapters one through two that he kind of talks about angels a lot, and you'll see that he uh, inserts several. Uh, quotes from the Old Testament. And if you look them up, they're from the Psalms, they're from 2 Samuel, and they're from Isaiah primarily. And what he is doing is he's contrasting this idea of angels and Jesus as how the Old Testament was looking at them. And this is something that his readers would understand and they can connect with. But what's the big deal about angels? You and I wouldn't really stop very long to think about that. Because, of course, we know Jesus is greater than the angels. So, why is that so important? Well, and especially in light of Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, which you don't have to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 33 verse 2, Moses is talking about how he received the law of God, the Torah, um, when he's on Mount Sinai. You remember when the children have left Egypt, uh, children of Israel left Egypt, and they're at Mount Sinai, and, and Moses goes up to receive the word of God. And if you were an Israelite. The words that Moses received was the foundation of your relationship with God. So it was a very big deal when God spoke to Moses. And what the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 33, 2, and later, Luke talks about this in Acts Acts, uh, 7, verse 38. What we learn is that it was angels who came and brought the message of God to Moses. At least that's what the Israelites taught In their tradition. And so the whole point of bringing up angels is to um, start the people to think about how um, Jesus is like the angels, but Jesus is better than the angels. Angels were messengers of God. If you read through the Bible, you'll see over and over again, all angels ever do are they come and they speak a word. They came to Mary and told her what to expect. They came to the shepherds and told them what to expect. The angel of the Lord stood before Joshua and told him what to expect. And people know they're in the presence of angels because they, they know they're in the presence of a heavenly being because they drop to their knees in terror and fear. And what do the angels always say? Don't be afraid. I've come to tell you what God wants you to know. And so if an angel comes and talks to you, it is a very important word you are about to hear. And in fact, the Old Testament Jewish religion was based on what the angels had brought to Moses. How to please God was found in the words brought to Moses that he shared with the people. So it's a big deal. And the author of Hebrews wants you to know and wants them to know that Jesus is a better messenger with a better word than what the angels brought to Moses that day on Mount Sinai. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 5. He, he starts to list things that show why Jesus is a better messenger. It, actually, look at verse 14 really quick. I just want you to see that he is comparing them. He's putting them together in their jobs. In verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, Are they, that's angels in Jesus, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Isn't it Jesus' job just like the angels' job to bring the message of salvation? Yes, it is. It's a rhetorical question. Of course it is. So how's Jesus greater than the angels' and what the people of God had known before. Look at verse 5. What does it say of Jesus of chapter 1? For of which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? God calls Jesus his son. In Job it says the sons of God were coming before, but it's a little s. Jesus is the capital S son of God. In verses 8 through 12, the writer lets us know that Jesus is also not just the Son of God, but he's equal with God. In verse 8 it says, But to the Son, God says, to Jesus, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. They're equal. In verse 13, it says that Jesus rules with God. The angels don't rule with God, at least not in the way that Jesus rules with God. As an equal and as a son. The angels carry out God's plan. Jesus carries out God's plan as the ruler himself. And then, what's also interesting in chapter 2, in verses 10 through 18, and this is a little different. This might not be what they would have expected to read or might not be what we think about, but the humility of Jesus makes him greater than the angels. I'm not, I don't know. If, not blaming the angels for not showing humility but every encounter we see of them when they come people fall down in terror around them because they realize they're in the presence of a heavenly being and the angel's always standing there but how did jesus come jesus came as a man not a lot of people some did not a lot of people every time they came to him fell to their knees because he came as a man. And in fact, Hebrews even says that when he did become a man, he made himself lower than the angels. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is showing that the humility Christ chose when he became a man to become our sacrifice, to become our salvation, he's saying that is one major reason why Jesus is greater than the angels because the angels didn't come to do that for us. Jesus did. The king of creation the king of the universe, came to be like us, to save us. And so Jesus is greater than the angels, and he has the final best word of salvation for God. Now, something um, that you'll also find in these four sections are warnings. And so that's what we need to take away is after we realize that Jesus is greater, that should call us to action. And there's always a warning in each section. And the warning here, the first warning is that you must take heed of Jesus' message because he is the final best word. His word is the standard by which you must live. No other standard. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels prove steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect a gr- such a great salvation? And in verse 1 of that same chapter, it says, Therefore, you must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, that is from Jesus, lest we drift away. What he's saying is, when the people listened to the angels, when they did what God had said, there was blessing. And when they disobeyed what the angels had said, they disobeyed God's word, there was curse. And if it's true for the angels, how much more true is it for the word of Jesus? That if you don't take heed of his message and follow him, how much worse will it be? And he's going to kind of go into that a little more in the next section, but we must take heed of Jesus because he is the final best word of God. So then in uh, the second section, Hebrews 3 through 4, and you're going to notice he's kind of building. So he started out with angels and he's kind of trying to shock the readers and shock the listeners into understanding just how important it is that we never forget that Jesus is greater. So he starts out with angels and the word of God, and, and he shows how Jesus has given the final word of God, the best word of God, and he's the best and final messenger, the better one. And then he talks about Moses. And we, we talk about Moses all the time, and, and if you had come from the, a Jewish background, and if you were living in this time, and if you had, your family was an Israelite family, Moses would have been somebody you would have wanted to be like. Moses was a top-tier Israelite. There's only a handful of names that the Israelites would think back on and say, let's be like them. Let's get back to their day. Remember how great they were. They're the ultimate heroes of the faith. So Abraham would be up there. Moses would be up there. David would be up there. At least those three and, and several others you could name. But when the author starts talking about Moses, people are starting to get... Wait a minute, what? Jesus is greater than Moses? Moses led us out of Israel. Or, uh, <laughs> that's funny. No, he didn't do that. Egypt, right, yes. We are Israel. He parted the Red Sea. He gave us food and water in the wilderness. How is Jesus greater than Moses? Well, look at this in verse 1 of chapter 3. Right off the bat, he compares Moses and Jesus, just so you know exactly what he, where he's going with this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all his house. It's so important that you, that you follow who's being talked about. Whenever it says his, so when you see capital H's, we're talking about God. So Jesus was faithful to him, that's Jesus was faithful to God, as Moses was faithful in God's house. So they're faithful in very similar ways. For this one, and that's a capital O, so it's Jesus, this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? he kind of clarifies himself in verse 5. Moses indeed was faithful in all of God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Jesus was faithful as a son over his own house, whose house we are. So They're very similar, Moses and Jesus. They were both faithful to God in that they had missions that they had to carry out for the Lord, and they were both faithful in those. And Moses should be recognized for the faith that he had. But there's a a distinct difference in who each of these people are. Moses is simply a servant in God's house, and Jesus is a son and inheritor and ruler of the house of God. And so, it's no stretch to think that if you are a servant, you are lower than the family who is running the house. And so, this again should be shocking to these people that, wait a minute, Moses was just a servant? Moses led the people of Israel. Moses heard from God. Moses went up to Sinai. Moses condemned the worship of the golden calf. Moses got Aaron started as the priests. Moses did all How could Moses simply be a servant? So how could Jesus be greater than Moses? How could Jesus be greater than the greatest man of faith these people knew? Well, then he goes into a little more detail. If you look at Moses' life, you could say it's a life full of faith and a life full of failure. Think of the things he did. He led Israel out of Egypt. He received the word of God. He mediated for the people. He built the tabernacle. He did all these great things for the nation of Israel. But look at chapter 3, starting in verse 16, and it says this. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was God angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness wilderness, and to whom did God swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. Moses was a faithful servant who did many, many great things for God, but Moses couldn't stop the people from turning their backs on God. And he couldn't help the people from doing that. As much as he tried, Moses could not stop the rebellion of the Israelites, and he could not fix the rebellion of the Israelites. And let me ask you this did Moses himself ever enter the promised land? He never did. And why? Because of his own personal rebellion, failure, and sin to God when he struck that rock. And God said, Moses, I did not want you to do that. Moses, you took matters into your own hands. That's not for you to do. So Moses was a great man. But he was still a sinner. And so, why is Jesus greater than Moses? Because Jesus never once rebelled against the law of God in thought, word, and deed. If Moses is a picture of faith and failure, Jesus is a picture of faith and victory. We already saw that he's the son of God in verse 6 of chapter 3. He's faithful to God in verse 2 of chapter 3. And that's fully, completely faithful in a way that even Moses never was. Even David never was and even Joshua never was. Two names that are also mentioned in chapter 4. Showing that no leader who came after Moses and no leader who ever came before was ever able to bring the people of God into their ultimate rest, right? They were always searching for the promised land. And so Jesus is greater than Moses because Jesus can bring you and bring his people into the rest of God. In uh, verse, uh, sorry, nine of, of chapter four, it says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his work. There's a rest that the lord wants to bring his people into there's a promised land and only jesus can bring people in there in verse 14 of chapter 4 it goes on seeing then that we have a great high priest that's christ who he already called a high priest earlier who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession jesus has already entered the rest of god jesus is already at the promised land he made it he completed the mission And what's amazing about Jesus and something Moses could never do, Moses who couldn't even ever get into the promised land, Jesus who's already there then reaches out and says, I will bring you in with me. So Jesus is greater than Moses. And then he goes on in the third section, and this is Hebrews uh, chapter 5 through 7. And again, they're building so so Jesus is greater than angels, something held in high regard to Old Testament Jews and and, and, and those who practice the Jewish religion, the Israelites, and and Jesus is greater than Moses, you know, a sacred cow that you wouldn't dare to talk against. And then he says in, in Hebrews 5 through 7 that Jesus is greater than Aaron and the priests. Jesus is greater than Aaron and the priests. We don't think in these terms, but imagine living in a society where your best chance of getting to God's presence was through someone else mediating for you daily. We just stop and we can pray at any time, right? We just do that. But those people wouldn't have done things that way. The Israelites would have had to go to their priest to hear from the Lord, to ask questions about what God thought, to offer sacrifices for their sins they had to go to someone else in their community to get close to God. And look at what priests do. In chapter 5, it tells you what a priest does. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The priest's job, the priest's job was to mediate for the people was to be the go-between the guy who understood what the people were feeling thinking and doing understand what god expected and translating that to both take the needs of the people to god and take god's commands to the people and stand in the gap when there was atonement and sacrifice needed for sin so the priests of Israel were appointed men from a certain line, a certain family, the Levites. That's Aaron's line, the brother of Moses, right? And so only Levites could be priests. God said this is their special job, no one else, only Levites. So they were appointed. They offered gifts and sacrifices. We talked about that. They understood the needs of the, pers- of, the, of the people. And then it points out something very interesting. And it points out why Jesus is greater than any of the Levitical priests, uh, look at verse 3. Oh, I'm sorry. Look, we'll start in verse 2. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. And what he's starting to talk about here, and he goes into it a little bit more, is that while the priest was supposed to offer sacrifices for the people, every single Levitical priest there ever had been since Aaron, including Aaron, had to also offer sacrifices for themselves because they were also sinners. And so you have an impure mediator, a flawed mediator, who's trying to bring the holy God to the people. And bring sinful people to the holy God, and your in between is just as flawed as everyone else. So, what God always required, and what God always wanted, and what God was always saying had to happen, was there had to be a perfect high priest, a perfect mediator, one who could somehow meet all the requirements that God had laid out, understand exactly what the people needed, and stand in between and mediate between both. And I can't think of anybody else who's ever done that, or claimed to have done that, except Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, you get a list of what Jesus does. You see he's appointed by God. You see he offers gifts and sacrifices. He actually does that for us. And we'll talk about how many of those he does in a minute. He also understands the needs of the people. Remember the humility he talked about back in chapter two, where he said he brings many sons to glory because he understands exactly what you feel and what you think. And the great thing about Jesus, the thing that elevates him, that makes him the best, is that he has no need for any personal atonement. You find that in chapter seven, and you find that also, a little bit in chapter eight, Jesus fulfills the law by every thought, word, and deed he he uh, he committed on this earth, and so he needs no sacrifice for himself. And then the question might be: If you're an Israelite hearing this, you might say, "Well, wait a minute, he's not a Levite, so how could Jesus be my high priest? How could he work for me? He doesn't meet all the requirements that God set up and." This was going to be the whole sermon anyway, but um, it, was just, it was just too much. So I just want to point something out to you that is so fascinating about this. And that's why we read Psalm 110 a little bit ago. But um, if you'll notice, when there is, uh, in, ver- in chapter 5, starting in verse uh, 6, it says, And God also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the Israelites thought they needed a Levite priest, one from that line and that genealogy. And what God had done masterfully in his plan in history is he had set up a superior priesthood that Jesus was going to be in the line of. Because Jesus is from Judah, so he doesn't qualify. But in Genesis chapter 14, there's this three or four verse encounter where Abraham... The father of the Israelites, the father of the Levites, the greatest of them all, they would have said. Where Abraham meets this strange, mysterious man named Melchizedek. He's coming back from a war, he won, and he comes by this city named Salem. And this guy comes out who says he's a high priest. And Abraham knows, and it says it, that this man worships the one true God, Yahweh. So they worship the same God, and when Abraham is in this man's presence, he realizes that this man is greater than him. Part of, that re- part of the reason is he's a priest, but he's also a king, which is a very unique thing in that time. There was a man who was the ruler of his city, and he was also the mediator for his people. And Salem, most people believe, was early Jerusalem. And Salem means peace. So this man was the King of Peace. His name means Lord of Righteousness, and he was also a high priest to the one true God. Now, come on! Can't tell me God didn't have that planned. Can't tell me He wasn't setting things up. And what what God says in Hebrews, what the author says in Hebrews, is that Jesus comes from that order which is superior, which is greater, which is better. Than anything Israel had ever known. And Jesus continues on that tradition of Melchizedek as the King of Peace, the Lord of Righteousness, and a high priest between you and your God. And so the warning here in, verse, in chapter 6, in four, uh, verses 4 through 6 is clear, is that if you reject Jesus, you are rejecting your best and only chance at reconciliation with God. There's nothing else That will save you. There's nothing else that will satisfy God's wrath for your sin except Christ. So don't turn away from Him and heed His message. And then finally, the last thing, and and we'll wrap this up Hebrews 8 through 10. We've been building. Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better, the best high priest. He's better than what the system that these people had. And then he finally kind of culminates in the most important thing that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And Jesus is better than any sacrifice that had ever been made for sin before. We don't have time to explore the sacrificial system, but if you've read any part of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or even Exodus, you'll know that there was a ton of different ways to sacrifice for many different things. Sins and you were required uh, sometimes daily and sometimes yearly, depending on what it was to be sacrificed for. You were required to bring certain animals, certain gifts, certain things to the altar, to the tabernacle, to the priest. Give that to the priest. Say, I'm bringing this because I have committed this sin and I need God's forgiveness and I need the blood shed for this. And the priest would take it and would shed the blood or offer the grain, or whatever he would do. And God said, those things I accept. Those things are pleasing enough for me right now. What the author of Hebrews wants you to know, and what Jesus wants you to know, is that that was never going to be enough to wash away your sin. It says it. blood, The blood of bulls and goats, animal blood cannot atone for human sin. God was merciful and gracious enough to say, You can do this, and I will accept it. But what he he said as well is, It's just a picture of what's to come. I want you to understand the sacrifice that has to be made for your sin. And God often said, and if you look at um, verses 8 through 12, you'll see this quotation. It's from the Old Testament. And God said to his people, even back then when he said, here's how I want you to sacrifice to me, he said, but listen, this is an old way, and I'm going to bring a new way. Behold, the days are coming, in verse 9. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Mm, the house Jesus is from. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And he paints this beautiful picture of what life is like after this new covenant is realized. And if you remember anything about covenants, like like the covenant God made with Abraham, there was blood required there, right? So there's this idea that sin and covenant and promise is sealed with blood. And it's a requirement that God has put. And so Jesus is greater than any sacrifice that came before. And Jesus offers a better covenant because what the author of Hebrews wants you to see in chapters 8 through 10 is that Jesus only ever had to offer one sacrifice. We already know he's the perfect high priest. And he only ever had to offer one sacrifice. But the cost of that sacrifice was the greatest anyone could ever have given. The priests never offered their own blood for the people, but Jesus shed his blood for you. And because of that, the Lord has entered into a new covenant with his people. And of course, we know that the gospel was told to be preached to the entire world. And so the body of Christ, the people of God, is now global. And that's how powerful the gospel of Jesus is, is that it goes anywhere and it can change any heart. And you never have to offer another sacrifice for your own personal sin. You only have to go to your personal, perfect high priest and ask him for forgiveness he'll stand between you and God's wrath and he'll say, this is my child. Show him your grace and mercy, Lord. And the warning here is the most serious warning there so far. And it's found in chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. If this is true... Then this is the warning. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. Now, again, this is a whole other sermon we could go into, but the warning is this. Basically, walking away from Jesus, turning your back on Christ, or just simply rejecting the message outright, carries with it the greatest degree of punishment that could ever be, and that is eternity in hell. And if everything is true that we've uh, read and and looked at so far, then why would you not run towards Christ? It's a free gift. He did all the work. He stands for you eternally. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in Christ. So consider carefully your relationship with Jesus. And there's a couple more chapters left in this book, and, and we don't have time to go into them today, but... As you read them now, this week, consider what has been said. Because the point that the author wants to get across to the people is that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. He's the express image, imprint of his image. And what that means for you is all these things, that he's given you the perfect word, that he's the eternal perfect high priest, that he's made one sacrifice for your sins that is more than sufficient to cover anything you could do. And so he says... Remain faithful to God and have confidence in the fact that your God loves you, your God walks with you, your God will carry you, and your God will sustain you through whatever life brings your way. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what he went through, what he willingly chose to do on my behalf. Father, we pray this morning that if there is anyone here who has not accepted Christ as their one and only Savior, Father, please, please help them to do so. Thank you that it is a free gift. You don't have to earn it, and that there is so much grace and mercy you lavish on us through it. Father, for those who are already Christians, who already follow Christ, I pray, Lord, that thinking about what Jesus means for us, how Jesus is greater and better, and he is the best, how that can sustain us through the trials of this life, how that can give us confidence and hope. Father, may we be a church that makes much of Christ in all we do, that we think like Jesus, we talk like Jesus, we act like Jesus, we love like Jesus. Show us how to do that better. And thank you for his example. In your name, amen.